0: You're listening to the Luca's Italy podcast, with food, culture and history from the land of ravioli and Ravenna. I'm Luca Marchiori, and today I'll be talking about how a plant, once considered poisonous, became Italy's most popular vegetable. Pellegrino Artusi, who you'll no doubt remember from last week's episode, includes the following anecdote in his cookbook. C'era un prete in una città di Romagna che cacciava il naso per tutto. Once upon a time, in a town in Romagna, there was a priest who stuck his nose in everywhere. Insinuating himself into families, he wanted to stick his oar into every aspect of their lives. He was, however, an honest man, and because his interfering did more good than harm, they let him get away with it. But the witty townspeople baptized him Don Pomodoro, Father Tomato because tomatoes get everywhere. So, I guess the point of this story is that by 1891, when the cookbook was published, Artusi considered tomatoes to be a fundamental aspect of Italian cuisine, and that's something which is still true today. In 2019, Italy was the number two producer of tomatoes in the world and the number one in the EU but 60% of Italian tomatoes are sold abroad and it's considered a leading made-in-Italy product. Mutti, Cirio, Pomì, and Alicennaro are brands now famous all over the world. And there are four main products which consumers are familiar with. The first is what's called in Italian pomodori pelati, which means skinned tomatoes. These are the tomatoes you find whole in tins. Then there's polpa, which is chopped tin tomatoes, concentrato, which in the United States is called tomato paste, and in the UK tomato puree, and finally passata, which is what's called tomato puree in the United States and passata in the UK. But it wasn't always like this, and indeed for the first 100 to 150 years of the tomato's history in Italy, it was viewed with suspicion. Now, tomatoes were first brought to Europe from the Americas between the 1520s and the 1540s. In about 1519, the painter Giovanni da Udine, who was a pupil and who worked with the great Renaissance master Raphael, painted some garlands carrying a huge number of flowers, fruits and vegetables as part of a fresco by his master in what's now called the Villa Farnesina in Rome. And featured in that fresco are many of the plants that had been recently brought back from the New World, including sweet corn. But there's not a trace of the tomato. And then in 1543, the Florentine artist Francesco Salviati de Rossi painted some frescoes in the Palazzo della Signoria in Florence, which were inspired by those from the Villa Farnesina. And this time, the tomatoes are there. Now, in 1544, Pietro Andrea Mattioli, who was a scientist and doctor from Siena, also in Tuscany, wrote a book in which he says that a new kind of eggplant or aubergine had been brought back to Europe from the New World. By the 1554 edition of this work, the text had been revised with the name of the plant, Pommi d'Oro, which means golden fruit, presumably because of the colour of the plant. And this is the first written reference to the tomato in Italy. Now, in modern Italian, tomatoes are still called by this name. It's been slightly changed into pomodoro. In 16th century France, it was called pomme d'amour, the love fruit, which people think is because they thought the plant had aphrodisiac qualities. However, this makes no sense because in the prevailing view of the time, aphrodisiacs had to have warm qualities, whereas the tomato was considered to have cold qualities. So I think the French name, pom was actually just a corruption of the Italian pomodoro. The French name, however, seems to have influenced the Sicilian dialect word for tomato, which is pumuramun, whereas the Neapolitan dialect word uh, is closer to the Italian in pumarola. Now, the modern French, and indeed the English word tomato, come from the Aztec word for the plant, which is tomato. And it's interesting to note that this form is still prevalent in some Italian dialects. I remember that when I was a kid, I spent many summers in Piemonte staying with my uncle and his family. And some of my fondest memories are of his mother-in-law, who was a sweet little old lady known to everybody as La Nonna Caterina. And she used to spend most of her day out the back of the house in her vegetable plot, growing vegetables. And one of the things she was proudest of were her tomatoes. And I remember she used to come out of the orchard with these huge buckets full of these tomatoes and she'd show them to me saying, tomatica, tomatica, which is the Piemontese dialect word for tomato. Now, there was a bit of confusion as to exactly what the tomato was in 16th century Italy, and it seems to have been confused with another plant which today is called the tomatillo. This is a plant which is related to the tomato, but it grows with this outer papery husk which has to be removed before eating. The modern scientific name for the tomatillo is Physalis philadelphica, and you find it everywhere today in Mexican cuisine. Now the Aztec for tomato was jitomatl and the Aztec for tomatillo was miltomatl but because they were l- related the Aztecs called them both by the generic word tomatl and this seems to have confused the Europeans who thought that they were cl- more closely related than they actually are and when you read some of the 16th century writings about tomatoes in Italy some of them describe a yellow or red plant, which is similar to the tomato today, and others describe the plant with the papery husk, which is obviously the tomatillo. Now, neither of these plants seem to have caught on immediately in Italy. Um, The tomatillo disappeared from Italy in about the 17th century. And the food writer David Gentlecore, in his book Pomodoro, gives six reasons as to why he thinks the tomato wasn't immediately popular in Italy. Now, the first is that they're actually not that easy or they weren't that easy to grow in Europe. And the second thing is that many varieties of tomato grew on vines and that meant that they grew close to the ground. So they were considered to be dirty or of low status. Now, the third reason is there were many different varieties of tomato or tomatillo around in Europe in the 16th century. And many of them were either toxic, inedible, or didn't really taste very good. So his fourth reason is because they didn't taste very good, they didn't seem to have any obvious use apart from colour, and in fact, we know that tomatoes were used as ornamental plants initially in Italy. Now, his next reason is that they were also not very filling, so they didn't have any obvious use as a peasant food that could be grown cheaply to fill up the stomachs of the general populace. And finally, many of the plants that came into Europe from the New World in the 16th century were, were used, were adopted, because they were similar to plants that already existed in Europe. So you could see how to use them, or how to grow them, or how to cook them whereas the tomato didn't have any obvious relationship to anything. Um, As we said, the early Italians thought that the tomato was related to the eggplant or aubergine, and others thought it was also related to the deadly nightshade. So obviously the aubergine was also considered quite hard to cook. The deadly nightshade was poisonous, and so obviously the tomato didn't seem very promising. However, little by little, people did start to eat tomatoes in Italy. Now, between 1692 and 1694, a chef called Antonio Latini, who was from the province of Ancona, wrote a cookbook called Lo Scalco alla Moderna, which means the modern steward. Now, Latini had worked first as a chef in Rome at the court of Cardinal Barberini, and then in Naples at the court of the Spanish Viceroy. Now, Latini includes three recipes for tomato, which come from his time in Naples and show an influence from Spain. And in fact, the Spanish had been early adopters of the tomato and had pioneered its cooking in Europe. In fact, his first recipe, which is for a tomato sauce, is called salsa di pomodoro alla spagnola, Spanish style sauce. And this is quite similar to a modern tomato sauce, but it's got chili in it, so it's a bit spicy. His second recipe is for minestra alla molignane. Now, molignane is an old word for eggplant, for aubergine. And this is a little bit like the modern French catatouille. And the third recipe is for cassuola di pomodoro, tomato casserole. And here it's cooked with chicken, pigeon and veal meat. Now, here we enter a bit of a dark period as far as the tomato is concerned in Italy, because between 1694 and 1773, there were no Italian cookbooks published in Italy, or at least none that we know of. But we know from things like monastery records of shopping lists and things like that, um, and also menus eaten on high days and holidays, that the tomato did begin to become popular in this period. Now, in 1767, Fernando I became the king of the two Sicilies, which had its capital in the city of Naples. And it's said that he received a gift from Spain of some tomato seeds, which had been directly brought back from Peru. And he's supposed to have planted these in the terrain between Naples and Salerno, and they're supposed to have grown very well and to have become quite popular. Now in 1773, we have our next Italian cookbook, Il Cuoco Galante by Vincenzo Corrado. Corrado was born in Puglia, but spent most of his career working as a chef in Naples. And his book has quite a lot of recipes containing tomatoes. And in fact, he said that far from being poisonous and tasteless, tomatoes were actually very tasty and even good for you. Now, as I said, Before modern agricultural techniques came along, tomatoes were actually quite difficult to grow in Europe. And in the 18th century, they remained very seasonal. So people set about trying to preserve them so that they could be eaten out of season and even all year round. Now, the first attempts to do this were by cutting the tomato vines when the tomatoes were still green and hanging them inside or outside your house until they ripened on the vine later. And this way they lasted into the winter, but also became quite sweet. Then in the early 1800s, in Sardinia and then in Campania near Naples, the technique of sun-drying tomatoes was developed. So here you cut the tomato in half, you salted it, and then you let it dry in the sun. And sun dried tomatoes were quietly being made in the south of Italy from the early 1800s until, of course, they became a great fad in British and American cooking in the 1990s. Now, the next development in preserving was to make a tomato paste. And so the tomatoes were basically strained. And then the liquid was set in the sun to dry and became quite a, a hard paste. And in fact, the earliest forms of this were, were black and they were called the nera, the black conserve. But this way it would happily keep and could be eaten all year round. Now, at the beginning of the 19th century, a French man called Nicolas Aper developed a technique for safely keeping fruit and vegetables in bottles and later in cans. And in fact, Aper is known today as the father of canning. And this led to the development of a more liquid, redder tomato paste, but also passata, in which tomatoes were gently cooked to soften them and then passed through a sieve and the resulting liquid was bottled. And then the final development came in the 1860s when, um, Francesco Cirio, who was a businessman from Turin, invented a way based on the technology of Appert of putting tomatoes in tins. And in fact, his work was first presented at the Paris Exposition in 1867. So by 1867, we have the whole gamut of products that we have today with the tin tomatoes, with the passata, and also with the tomato puree or paste. And it's no accident that the two most popular Italian dishes containing tomatoes also developed around about this time, taking advantage of the fact that the tomato could now be eaten all year round. And both of these started in the city of Naples. The first one is pasta al pomodoro, pasta with tomato sauce, which in many parts of Italy is called pasta alla Napoletana, Neapolitan style pasta. And the second, of course, is the pizza. You'll remember from the episode about the pizza margherita that in 1878, when the king and queen of Italy were visiting Naples, the most popular local variety of tomato was named after him. It became the Re Umberto tomato. And this which was based on the seeds planted by Fernando I, later became the famous San Marzano tomato, which is the most popular and the most prestigious Italian tomato which exists today. Now, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, there were a lot of agricultural reforms in Italy. And at this time, there was a lot of work done into the development of growing tomatoes, and they were encouraged very much as a crop. And it was at this point that Cirio, the company from Tirin, and Mutti, the company from Parma, uh, became the leading lights in tomato production. And it's a really interesting fact that most of the tomatoes which are grown in Italy today are grown either in the southern region of Puglia or, surprisingly, in the central northern region of Emilia-Romagna. And this is presumably because of the proximity of Mutti, uh, the company which is based in Parma, which is in Emilia-Romagna. And it's interesting to see that there's still a north-south divide in Italy between the way that tomatoes are eaten. In the north, where the tomato was traditionally harder to grow, but also where Italian industry developed, you have more of the preserved tomato. And as I said, Cirio and Multi, the two biggest companies making preserved tomatoes, are both from the north. But as you'd expect, the Regions of Italy that eat the most fresh tomatoes are Sicily, Lazio, the area near Rome, and Campania, the area around Naples. And this has probably got something to do with the current Italian fashion to eat things which are considered chilometro zero, um, zero zero-kilometre products, so products which are grown locally and eaten locally. So that's how the tomato, which in the 16th century was considered a bit of a Cinderella fruit or vegetable, became the famous Italian product that it is today. So thank you once again for listening to this podcast. Um, Today, we've actually reached a milestone, which is the 10th episode of the podcast. When I first started this podcast 10 weeks ago, I had no idea that anybody was even going to listen. But then, of course, all you lovely people came along and started listening. And according to the current statistics from my podcast provider, we're currently in the top 20% of podcasts. So thank you so, so much. And thank you, of course, once again, for the fantastic feedback, comments, and reviews that you've been writing both on Apple, but also on my blog. And this week's review comes from somebody called Kathy Gates, who is in Malta. And she writes, thank you so much for this podcast. As I sit here in Malta, waiting for the results of a Covid test, mild symptoms, fingers crossed, you took me back to my friend's home in San Pietro in Casale, not far from Bologna. Like many homes, they have a copy of La Scienza in Cucina. I had created an English lesson called The Mystery of Spaghetti Bolognese, which talked about something that made my students want to express their opinions, of course. Even though I'd heard of Artusi's book and his thoughts on ragù alla bolognese, no tomato, I could only find versions of his recipe on the internet. Using the book, I was able to incorporate his version into the lesson, which elicited more opinions on what should be in a ragù, etc. On the day that I gave this lesson to a group of teenagers, one of them had actually had ragù alla bolognese for lunch. Your podcast brought back so many loving memories. I miss my friends, my students, and Bologna. Grazie ancora. Well, Kathy, I hope that everything went well with the COVID test. And thank you so much for this comment. It really makes me happy. to know that my podcasts are appreciated. So thank you. So all that remains is to say thank you and that I'll be back next week for another slice of Italian food, culture, and history. So have a great week. Ciao.